This morning, scripture, the 14th chapter, Romans, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord that Jesus in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean for if your brother is grieved by what you eat you are no longer walking in love by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have... Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, heart, and mind as we contemplate your words, Father. For we know without your spirit it is impossible for us to understand what you have for each one of us. And Father, I just pray that I speak your words and that they be not of me, but be of you and be glorifying unto you. And we just pray that your spirit help us apply these words as a church and as individuals as we go about living this Christian life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we have gone through a great deal of chapter 14. We'll probably have one more week before we finish up chapter 14. And chapter 14, as we have seen, has been dedicated to basically how we live together as Christian brothers and sisters and how we live together as a church. And the beautiful thing about chapter 14, and it's pretty amazing uh, how God works it out to where we are in the Bible and how it relates to the Bible study, how it relates to Sunday school, and how they all intermingle and and mesh together at one time is pretty amazing, and it's clearly uh, God's work and His hand at play whenever that does happen. But I think chapter 14 has taught us that the Christian life isn't an individual walk. And you, and you hear that a lot. We tend to think, well, I'm responsible for me. And we kind of like that idea, right? We don't want other people in our business or in our walk because we like to have that isolation. And we tend to withdraw from a corporate type of worship or a corporate type of faith. Chapter 14 shows and demonstrates to us that it is corporate, that Even though my faith is given to me, my God, it is a corporate faith, and we're all in this together. And that's one of the reasons why God has established the church. And you go to John chapter 17, and you see Christ's high priestly prayer, and he's talking to the Father, and he said, Father, I pray that they are one as you and I are one. And that's his, that's, that's, was Christ's desire of the church that we be united as one. 
And I think the church has gotten away from that. I think that the way society has evolved, that we've gotten away from this corporate structure and we've gotten into a bunch of individuals sitting in pews. And that's not the way God planned for it to be. And that's not how he wanted his church to function and act. And we've gone through how the church is a body, right? My body isn't a group of individual members that are not related to the others and know what the others are doing and helping out the others in all areas. But if you take away my finger, then the other three's got to make up that loss. And I'm not just talking about the physical reality of it. I'm talking about the spiritual reality of it more than anything. And chapter 14 is a good illustration of that. That we work together to ensure the physical needs are met, but we work together to ensure that our spiritual needs are met as a corporate group, not as a group of individual believers. And I really hope that you can see the difference. The church, not us, but the church in general, was a tighter-knit group of people in the early days. They did a lot of things together. That was their family. But as society has changed, we have withdrawn from that. And I don't think that's a good thing. I I, I don't think that's the way Christ would want it. He wants us to exemplify a family to a greater degree than what you got back home. Because this group's in for eternity. The group you got back home... It's not going to be there forever for those that don't believe. And so that's what he wants from the church, is that we're in this together, we're pulling together for each other, helping each other along physically, and most important, spiritually. And I think it's not a good thing that we've lost that. We should function as a body. And chapter 14 is illustrating how we function as a body in harmony. And how we do that and are able to cooperate. And when I say cooperate or coexist, not only do we avoid petty disputes, but we also embrace each other in a very special way. And we saw Paul deal with petty disputes, and he's sort of dealing with it here in this part of the chapter as well. Unfortunately, the church, not unlike a family, can be a breeding ground for petty disputes, right? Golly, can the family not be a breeding ground for petty disputes? And the church. I mean, we probably all have heard people talk about, I went to church, something happened, I got my feelings hurt, I'm out. I'm out. I ain't going back. I ain't going back probably petty in the overall scheme of things most likely it was a a petty situation that led to that but oh the damage that that caused oh the damage that it did to perhaps their eternal life i mean we know in 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 hebrews that we it is a commandment that we meet together we not forsake the gathering together we come to church on sundays But because of a petty dispute, most likely, 
Some have chosen not going to do that to only at the end demonstrate that they're disqualified and that they never really were saved. The dangers that can come from small things such as, such as that. But as we've seen and as we looked at last week and we're going to look at again this week, there is a difference in avoiding petty disputes such as what meat you should or shouldn't eat, whether or not you should drink wine or whether one day is more holy than the others and overlooking sin. So the type of harmony that Paul is talking about here has absolutely nothing to do with overlooking sin. The church should never overlook sin because I will assure you that sin has a greater destructive property when it comes to churches than petty disputes. So we wanted to make that clear as we go through this that Paul is not encouraging us to overlook sinful activities. However, he is talking about eating and drinking and favoring one day of the week over the others in this specific instance. And he tells us not to invite arguments. Don't play devil's advocate with respect to things of the church. Arguments and disputes over things like Paul tells us about here are not essential to eternal life. And that's, a, that's an important distinction to make. They're not essential to, to eternal life. And so they shouldn't be divisive. And you say, there, there are a lot of small things that may or may not be essential eternal life. And, and how do I gauge that? And it's, it's tough to gauge. It's tough to determine what's essential and, and what's not essential. And so I think that the litmus test, and I think I mentioned this last week, is does it do harm? Does it do harm to individual believers? And does it do harm to the church as a whole? And I actually had a conversation with a, a brother in Christ this week about that. He brought up the prosperity gospel, and those of you who do not know the prosperity gospel in in a small brief synopsis the prosperity gospel believes that God wants you to be rich and healthy and everything that the world wants out there and that you're entitled to that and that you will be healed from all infirmities you just have to have enough faith now what's the problem with that well I'll tell you the problem with that as I shared with this brother the problem with that is those that say, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. Well, we all know that we're going to die sometime, folks. That's the reality of life. So there's always going to come a time in our lives when we're not going to have enough faith to cure whatever it is that ails us. What does that do to us as individuals and our faith when that happens? What happens when somebody tells you, if you have faith, you're going to be healed, and you're not healed? Then you turn around and you say, what's wrong with me, God? Why don't I have the faith to be able to be healed? That does damage. That destroys people's faith. That makes them think that they're not of God. That he doesn't love them, that he doesn't care about them. That he doesn't give them the faith to be healed. That's dangerous. So is that something that we overlook and say, oh, that's okay, I don't think that it is because of the damage that it causes. 
But we have to look and examine whatever it may be and determine whether or not it's divisive or not. Because there are some things we have to stand on and we can't sacrifice. Things that are essential to a person's faith in Jesus Christ. Things that are essential to eternal life. And so I think there are differences as we go through this passage and how we look at each individual instance. So, he encourages us not to judge, and we spent all last week talking about judging, and the type of judging is not with respect to sin. We have to judge sin. That's just the reality of what we do as individual human beings. We judge what is right or wrong, and we act accordingly. The judging dealt with eating food or not eating certain meats, drinking wine or non-essential things. He's saying avoid judging people when it comes to non-essential things. And we talked about Matthew 7 when when Jesus said, those of you judge not lest you be judged. Don't worry about the speck of dirt in somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. So you say, how does that work? I think it's important that we have to assess ourselves all the time. Knowing full well that I have sin in my life, but man, I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it, I repent, I turn away, I fight it every day. The log occurs when we have sin and we embrace it and it's no big deal to us, and yet we want to point out everybody else's sin. That's the definition of hypocrisy. That's the danger. As long as we are aware of our own sin, then we're there to help each other out. And how do we help each other out in that? If I'm doing something that I ain't supposed to be doing, I want you all to let me know. I want you all to let me know. Because there's a danger if you don't. If you don't let me know, there's a danger at the end of all this, I get disqualified. And I don't want that. We're all in this for the same goal. And that goal is to reach the end and make it all the way. And if I don't have each other and all I've got is my blind self, I may lose it in the end. And that's something we don't do anymore. And we're talking about it in Bible study over here on Sunday nights. And I encourage you to come because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about church membership. We're talking about church discipline. We're talking about helping each other with their sin. Now, if you come up to somebody and you know they're caught in sin and you say, hey, look, you don't need to be going down this road and it all goes bad, it probably all goes bad because they don't know how much you love them. That's the first step. That's the very first step because you haven't or we haven't invested enough in each other to know, I'll die for you. I will. That's the first step. So we have to invest in each other before we can get to the next step because it'll go bad. It'll all go south from there. But we're all pulling and should be pulling in the same direction. Willing to share life's most difficult moments. Willing to share life's most wonderful moments, regardless of what they are. Not being afraid of telling somebody, hey, I'm in a bad spot. Because we share love to the extent that we're not worried about somebody gossiping about us. Because we have a love that they don't have outside. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That we love like they don't know how to love. 
And we're not here to tear each other apart. We're here to lift each other up and assure that each one of us was going to make it to the end. That's what Christ's church is supposed to look like. And we're to be encouraging to each other. We do it with our children, right? If our children are about to engage in some type of activity that we know there's a pretty good likelihood they'll die, what are you going to do? Everything in your power to keep them from doing it. If I'm engaged in an activity that you know that is going to lead to me being disqualified at the end, I sure hope you do everything in your power to keep me from doing it. Because there's way more at stake than it is when life and death of your child. But oftentimes we don't. Because we have changed our view of faith into an individualized, it's none of my business. I'm going to let them be disqualified and spend eternity in hell because it's none of my business and I don't want to offend them. Offend me! Please! Please! That's why corporate worship in the church is so important. So the Bible is clear that we are to be there for each other and help each other, especially in those moments when we're blinded by sin, when we can't see and make sense of anything else that's going on. But yet there are times and things that we do that aren't essential, that in the overall scheme of things make no difference, whether it's you eat meat on Fridays or don't eat meat at all or drink wine or don't drink wine or one day is above the other, they're not essential. Paul's saying, don't quibble over those things. Don't be divisive. I got in trouble last week because I used divisive. You can pronounce it either way. Steph's like, I didn't know what you were saying. You were saying divisive. I say divisive. I say potato. You say potato. But anyway. So as I said, the litmus test is whether it is dangerous or poses a danger to the church or to your faith. And, and I think we have to keep that in mind as we go, go through this. So let's move on to this morning's passage. Let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So here again, we see this corporate mentality. We're looking out for each other, not an individual situation. If it was an individual faith, I wouldn't care. But it's a corporate faith. Let us not judge each other on individual matters or non-essential matters. But then Paul tells us there's a danger if we do or when we do. If we are going to dispute over what color the curtains are or whether we think they're eating meat that they shouldn't be eating or drinking wine when they shouldn't be drinking wine or believe that one day is more holy than other, then it's going to lead to something else. What is it it leads to? It puts a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as I said earlier, it can actually, if left unchecked, can grow to a situation to where people leave the church. People just get their feelings hurt and they leave the church in total. Not only do they walk away, but they they never come back. So Paul goes to great lengths to make sure not to cause his brothers and sisters 
to stumble. And he did. He went to great lengths to make sure that didn't happen. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, Paul says, I am free from all. I have made myself a servant of all. Why? That I might win more of them. Even though he truly knew in his heart he was free, he served everyone just for the sake of the gospel. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to, why? Win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them its blessings. So you see, Paul went to great lengths to make certain he didn't do anything that would result in a stumbling block to his brothers and sisters that whenever they got to the end that they would become disqualified over something that he had said, over something that he did. So here he admits that he's totally free, yet he serves everyone. And in verse 20, that he was a Jew, and in fact he was a Jew, but he became and acted as a Jew to win the Jews over, to bring them to faith in Christ. Verse 21, to those outside the law, he became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So to those outside the law would be the Gentiles. He became as one outside the law. So the Gentiles would always make fun, and we're going to talk about this some more in a few moments. They would always make fun of the Jews for everything that they observed and everything that they ate and how they observed the law. And the Gentiles would say, we're free. We don't have to do anything according to the law. So Paul comes along, he's like, you know what? You all are right. You don't have to do anything to be saved. You don't have to obey any of the stuff that Moses told the Jews to obey. You don't have to do it. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So we've talked about the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love the law of love so even though they were free they didn't have to do anything he's saying whenever you actually love you obey it so even though the gentiles were outside the law they actually were included and kept the law because of the law of christ or the law of love and they brought them in and they were able to keep the law out of love not out of a third third-party request or mandate or general rule to keep the law. So Paul was saying that he would tell those that didn't believe in the law that you didn't have to. And he would only do that in order to show them the love of Christ and bring them into Christ. Verse 22. To the weak he became weak. Why? Just for the gospel. And he became all things to all people so that Christ would look good so that Christ would be made much of I do it all for the sake of the gospel he says that I might share with them its blessings back to 14 for I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, in returning to these two passages, Paul goes back to what's, what they're eating and how they're treating each other with respect to their, their dietary restrictions. Now, Paul knows that there's absolutely nothing unclean. He knows that everything that God created for us to eat is good and profitable and is from God, and that's all fine. However, he says, if someone believes that you shouldn't eat something, or someone believes that you shouldn't drink something, (coughs) and they are honoring God in their belief and abstention, then you need to heed their opinion on that. You need to listen to what's happening to them. As you've heard me say many times, eating and drinking and doing certain things was a big deal to the Jews. That was their life. I mean, from the eighth day after the male's birth, they lived by the law, they abstained from certain foods, and they ate and drank other foods, and they had a very prescribed lifestyle. And this takes me to Acts 15. If you remember a few years ago, we went through Acts, and it's beautiful the way that that Paul actually plays this out perfectly in, in Acts 15. In Acts 15, there were people who came into the church at Antioch. Remember, that was the first Gentile church. And there were people who came into the church at Antioch while Paul and Barnabas were away and were teaching those people they had to be circumcised to be saved. Verses 1 and 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after... Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So here we go. We have a situation arise in the church at Antioch. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. Essential or non-essential? Non-essential. What did Paul and Barnabas do? Hang on to that, Anna. No small dissension. Does it sound to you like Paul and Barnabas were just going to sweep this under a rug for the sake of unity and say, it's okay, you guys believe you have to be saved by being circumcised and others don't and it ruined? No! They threw a fit! They absolutely threw a fit. It was a great dissension and debate between those who were teaching that they had to be saved by circumcision and Paul and Barnabas. It was absolutely essential. If you believed you're saved by certain things that you do, whether it's being circumcised or baptized or whatever the case may be, then you don't have saving faith because that faith is coming by your works and not fully and only by God's grace. That was a problem. So here Paul and Barnabas has this issue arise in the church in Antioch It was a big deal. It was essential. There was a lot of dissension, and they were not going to ignore it for the sake of unity. So essentially then, they decided to convene a council at Jerusalem. And so we had Paul and Barnabas and um, James and Peter and a bunch of the apostles and a bunch of representatives from different churches, and they all went to Jerusalem to deal with this issue. 
And so after they got to Jerusalem and they had this meeting, then they sent a letter to the Gentiles. Therefore, my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. This is sort of unique in that they said, okay, we're going to have a decision where we all believe and concluded that circumcision does not save you nor does someone who believe have to be circumcised. But by the way, I know there's problems in the church between Gentiles and Jewish believers, and they just rub each other raw. There are certain things that they just have difficulties with, a lot of which were some of the traditions that the Jews had held since birth and continued to try to hold on to later on. And so in their defense, the Gentiles weren't very kind to the Jews. The Gentiles would go out of their way to get meat that had been sacrificed to idols and eat it in front of them and poke fun of them for not doing it themselves. And this just rubbed them the wrong way. So they're saying, in order to provide harmony in the church between the Gentiles and the Jews, we're going to ask the Gentiles, yeah, everything's clean, you can eat what you want, but just refrain from eating meat from animals that have been sacrificed to idols Sexual immorality is sort of strange, and I don't fully understand why it's in there, because that's wrong for everybody, okay? That's wrong for Jews, Gentiles, you name it, that is wrong. So I'm not sure that we properly interpret the sexual immorality that's in there. Also, the Jews would not eat meat from animals that had been strangled or animals that weren't well done. They would not eat rare beef, rare anything. That was a command, and they held on to that command, and again, they did not like seeing the Gentiles do this. So they said, look, salvation's not dealing with those, so we're just going to ask that you refrain so that your Jewish brother doesn't stumble. So that your Jewish brother doesn't stumble. And that was basically the reason for this letter that they sent out. Back to Romans. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So Paul tells us, if your actions, even though they're not sinful, are grieving your brother or sister in Christ, and you continue to do them, you're not walking in love. You're not demonstrating Christ's love in the way that he wants you to. we are to love each other in such a way that we encourage each other in the faith. But when things like that happen, it becomes discouraging to them and can be a stumbling block in which sometimes they may never get over. So they decided, the Jews or the Gentiles decided that they were going to refrain from that. Many of you say, well, whatever I eat or drink or whatever I do is my, my, my business. None of your business. But this passage tells us differently. This passage tells us what I eat and drink and what you see me eat and drink or what you see me do or say is everyone's business because it can become a stumbling block to others. And I try to avoid that at all costs. And so it's a different way that we should act as a corporate group or as a 
corporate church. Now, as I've said before, many times and from this pulpit, I don't believe there's anything wrong with drinking a glass of wine, nor do I believe there's anything wrong with drinking a beer. The sin comes whenever we do that too much. I think that's very clear from the Bible. I am 100% convinced of this in my heart. However, there are those that do not believe that way. There are those that have the exact opposite feeling with respect to that, right? They are teetotalers. You drink, not a good thing. Shouldn't be doing it at all. So, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it? And, and I'll tell you, this is how I deal with it. Not that I'm right, but this is how I feel I'm right in dealing with it. Is if, if I'm in a restaurant, and I'm out and about, and it's local, I don't. I don't. I dare say you won't see me at any local restaurants drinking alcohol. Why? For that reason. For that reason. Even though I'm convinced it's fine, what happens is I might do them harm. My actions may do them harm. And you say, how are your actions going to do them harm? They see me drinking in a restaurant. What are they going to do? You think they're just going, hmm, okay, go on. No, they're going to go back. They're going to say, can you believe what I saw Scott doing and he's a pastor? Right? My indulgence or my proclivity to engage in God's gift of an alcoholic drink leads them to some sort of sinful activity. Whether it be gossip, whether it be some sort of judging and telling others that it's not right and going all... I'm causing my brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Do you see that connection? So the least I can do, now if I run on to you in some other city, I'm sorry. But the least I can do is try to refrain from that in order to stop the repercussions that may happen out there. Even though I believe they're wrong, okay? They believe I'm wrong. But it's not where I want to do something to cause my brother or sister to stumble into the fact that I may even cause them to engage in some sort of sinful activity and end up destroying their walk with Christ. And so I, I hope that you can see that our faith isn't individual and in that it is corporate in that we have to always be looking out for each other, encouraging each other, helping each other, not only in times when we're sick or ill or need money or need something like that, but especially in spiritual matters where we're not all mature and some of us are at different stages that we constantly lift up and encourage and love on each other in that way. Verse 16 to 17, I'm wrapping it up. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You see how that would work in the example I gave. That I regard that as good, but yet those that see me and think, of, think the opposite would be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God, it's a beautiful verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, 
Eating and drinking is so minute and unimportant. Don't get caught up in that. Sacrifice that if you have to, because what's really important is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we should all ascribe to, because that's the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. That should be our focus. So when that's our focus, giving up some of God's gifts in order to help a brother or sister in Christ not to stumble... Not to lose hope, not to be discouraged, not to walk away from the faith is incredibly important. And that should be our focus as a corporate church. So as we move forward and we're going to finish these passages up next week, I want you to think about that. Try to take our mentality of our relationship with Christ from being an individualized, I'm only going to worry about me, you worry about you, to a corporate is, we're going to worry about each other because we're going to drag each other to the end no matter what it takes because it's the same goal, it's a common goal, and we're going to make sure that we invest in each other where everybody knows that we love each other with all of our hearts, and then we're going to help each other all the way to the very end. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you 